this is, I hope you're not superstitious, this is the 13th Scots Way podcast and we're going to talk today to Kapker Kasabova, I hope that's the right way of saying it, fantastic, yep. um, a writer, tra- you basically write in almost all styles as far as I can tell, travel writing, journalism, poetry, uh, memoir and novel. Um, well first of all thanks for coming along. <laughs> Before I hit you with a question, but what do you? Is, what's the difference between the different styles of writing that you do? I mean, do you have a mindset that you think, right, today I'm going to write poetry, today I have to write this piece because there's a deadline, or when could you explain that? I don't know that I could explain it, but uh, it's, uh, it's. I think the explanation is that I'm just a very uncalculating sort of person, and um, I'm perhaps slightly disorganised in my approach to to um, my own career as a writer. I never thought of writing as a career. Mm-hmm. I think if I had, I would have perhaps focused on one thing and focused on getting getting myself a label. <laughs> 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 you know, in a, in a, in a kind of a sensible way. But I, I guess I, I'm driven by curiosity and that for me has meant mm, indulging myself yes. uh, in every way I can uh, when it comes to writing. So... Uh, I think that you know we've got that's the result of my self-indulgence the fact that I've written um, travel memoirs two of them and a novel and poetry it's um it's just a symptom of you know uh, I think it's it's all about playing um, you have to be in a state of play when you yeah. write and in that sense you can't predict what will well, what will happen <laughs> well I think that's <laughs> a very current way of looking at being a writer because it seems to me now more and more people people still are hung up on the idea of genres and on the idea of labels and I think that's always unfortunate it often gets in the way of understanding the writing itself because there's assumptions that come along with any labelling. One of the reasons when we started doing Scots or Hay was to say we're not saying this is great because it's Scottish, we're saying it's great and it's Scottish and there's a Scottish aspect to it and whatever that means, you can decide, let's not get hung up on that, let's look at the stuff. Um, And it also seems to me that people now are moving away from that, you know, people have to make a living of some kind. So maybe do have to, uh, something that you find quite natural, it seems to me, just being playful, writing in different styles, writing about different things, your curiosity, it seems to me more people are maybe having to do that. They may have to do a bit of journalism, they have to do their novel if they want to do that, and th- those labels kind of melt away, I think, a bit. I hope so. I, I really, I, I am I'm not a believer in labels. No, I, I, I know they have a practical value, but I think there are two aspects to... Um, sustaining a life as a writer one is the practical aspect as you said you have to survive somehow mm-hmm. uh, you have to you know try out different things purely for sort of uh, financial reasons um, and the other aspect which is far more important I think and far more lasting is that you have to be true to yourself mm-hmm. so if that means trying out different different things until you find your your voice uh, which has been my case, especially when I was a really young writer in my twenties. Yeah. Uh, then so be it. And if and if that being true to yourself means writing crime fiction, yeah, uh, for decades, then that is equally great. I, I, absolutely. People get and still there are these arguments about well, that's genre fiction, therefore it's somehow of less worth. 
And it really not. We were talking about Louise Welsh before, who I think is just one of the best writers in, around. I agree. Full stop. And yet, she has said herself, she said on her podcast, sometimes it's handy to be seen as crime or, you know, gothic or whatever it is, because people say, oh, great, that means we can put that in our crime section and we know it's going to sell books. But if that means that she's somehow lessened in other people's eyes as a writer, then that's a huge shame. And it's their loss, let's face it, if that happens. Yes, and I think at the end of the, at the, end of the day, it's, I think it's the writer's task. It's the great task of, of your life as a writer, I think, to to challenge any kind of pigeonholes, any kind of labels that are, you know, stuck onto you. So, I mean, my obvious label is the one of, oh, you know, the, the, the language prodigy. She speaks five languages. <laughs> She's so cosmopolitan. But, you know, that I have to move away from that. Uh, that's not what, that's not the only thing that defines me. I mm -hmm. want to be free, not just to write about places, which has been, I think, the great obsession, the, the great obsessive streak and sort of the great theme of, of my writing, mm -hmm. the place and my relationship, our relationship with place uh, and therefore displacement, of course. Yes. Um, I want to have the freedom to move away from that if I feel like yeah. it. If I want to feel like writing a horror novel, I want to feel free. Uh, whether it, you know what would have come of it is another question, but I want to have the inner freedom yeah. to do that if I feel like it. Of course. Um, the, and it's, it should be that the, the, the artist, whatever the artist means, who defines defines themselves. And you know, I think often it's the other way around, and that that really frustrates me. And that's why I like, hopefully, to get people to tell us a bit about themselves and at the end define who they are for us. Um, what I've read, some of your poetry, which you did for a Year of Open Doors, if I remember correctly, and a Your Mama Told Minutes in Love. And it seems to me just reading the, the, those two, it's, it's the reason I asked the question in the beginning was there was no doubt it was you that was writing it. And I think what you're talking about having, finding your voice is interesting because I think the best writers, that's whether they write a piece of journalism, whether they write um, an essay, you always know it's, you can find out it's them on the street away without having seen the name above the thing. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I, I think voice is very much about honesty. Mm -hmm. That is there an honesty to your writing? And I think sometimes, you know, if you start off as a very young writer, it can take a while to, you know, to... to to pay yourself down to a kind of honest yeah. state, that is your voice. Yeah. Uh, and you can tell a piece of writing, in a piece of writing, whether it, there is honesty there or whether there is posturing and a uh, kind of distance, um, you know, from the source. Yeah. I think you always have to write from the source. So do you think usually, well, in your case perhaps, as a, as a young writer, that there's a pressure to feel there's a way I should be writing rather than just writing, as you say, from, from the source, from yourself? You think, well, I should be using more simile or I should be, you know, being more fancy in my writing. God, no, 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 that would be awful. No, but did you think that as a younger writer or did you straight away know that that wasn't the case? No, I think I've always had this kind of um, sort of obstinacy in, in the way I approach writing, which is that I want to write exactly the way I I am yeah. and exactly the way I feel. And I think as a very young writer in my early 20s, having barely come into English, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, in my late, I only started writing in English in my late teens. Um, I think that that meant a kind of rawness of, 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 of voice, um, you know, a kind of lack of 
That's interesting. Not just a lack of polish, but a lack of um, lack of measure. You know, it was kind of a, a very raw state to mm -hmm. be in. You know, writing in a new language. Oh, that's really interesting. The reason I asked that question is I remember asking a similar one to Alan Bissett and he said that for his second novel he had been at university, he had studied literature and he felt he had to write something that was literary, whatever that means. And, and he, I think at one point he was trying to do a kind of Jekyll and Hyde set in Leeds or something really odd. And anyway, this is just terrible, went back to what he knew, went back to Falkirk, where he was from, and wrote um, The Incredible Adam Spark, which is, a, again, you can tell immediately this is an Alan Bissett novel. That's what I mean, you have to write from the source, and yeah. I think sometimes you sort of circle around it for, for a few years <laughs> until you hit on it. So let's talk about your source, because as you say, you didn't write in English till your late teens. Um, just tell us a bit about how you came to be here now. <laughs> that's a long journey but uh, you, you just, uh, were born in Bulgaria is that correct? grew up born and grew up in Bulgaria and uh, I guess our family were part of the first big waves of uh, brain drain of you know emigration uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall yeah of course yeah. we emigrated um, the following year uh, to New Zealand mm -hmm. of all places as you do uh, so I did my university years and my first 12, 13 years as a writer, uh, as a poet primarily, mm -hmm. in New Zealand. Uh, and that's where I, I acquired this strange twang in my accent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, somehow uh, ended up in Scotland seven years ago. Yeah, that makes it sound very simple, but having read Two Minutes of Love, you have been here, there and everywhere. <laughs> where did this, as I say, obviously part of it was professional because you were writing, doing travel writing, but it does seem that, I'm not going to give the end of the book away because even though it's a memoir, we'll maybe talk about it later, but there does seem to be a, a desire to be elsewhere, if you like, to kind of, well, I'm not quite happy here or I'm happy for a short time, but then I want to go somewhere else. Is that a fair assumption? That's spot on. <laughs> <laughs> You're a very, very close reader. <laughs> yes, I think... Um, both in my writing and in my life, I was fueled for a long time, sort of driven by uh, the the need to escape, the desire to escape, this feeling of always being in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. You know that feeling. I, I think as children and teenagers, we we tend to have it anyway, wherever we yeah. are. Sort of, this is not this is not the right place. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've been born in. I wish yeah. I was somewhere else, more exotic <laughs> and more interesting. It's a common affliction. Yeah, this isn't my family. Actually, I've been, I've been given to the wrong people. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sometimes, yes, on a, <laughs> on a more localized sort of um, uh, uh, scale. But uh, you know, so that's a common affliction as, as in adolescence. But in my case, it, in, instead of kind of resolving it, uh, it, it sort of evolved. <laughs> it got worse <laughs> as, I, as I grew older. Uh, so this urge to escape and to always run to the next place uh, became quite destructive. Mm. And in part, that's what 12 Minutes of Love is about. Uh, of course, it's a book about tango. Uh, and tango itself has a story, you know, it, it has those themes of escape and displacement and uh, sort of... Uh, you know, uh, existential um, 
malaise, if you yeah. like, uh, which is really a form of cultural malaise in the case of uh, I think that's Dango. what I, um, well, I enjoyed the book so much was because, you know, it says 12 Minutes of Love, a tango story, and there's just so much more than that going on. There is, uh, when we first meet you and we first meet Tango at the beginning of the book, it seems to me that you needed to find Tango at that. I'm talking about it as if it's a person because it almost is. It's a love affair. And, and, and when you meet uh, in New Zealand, you see this chance that here's something that's just going to certainly change your life and perhaps even more. Absolutely. I think it, it, it has all the... All the symptoms of a love affair, this story, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it really it, does. It spans 10 years. Uh, There's ups and downs. Ups and downs. Uh, it brings out the best in you and the worst in you. And, uh, you know, you play out the, the, all the cliches <laughs> uh, of a love affair and an obsession. And then, of course, you move beyond the cliches to mm. really find out what this is about. And, um, and if necessary, remove yourself. Yes. But... <laughs> But why, can you say why Tango, you, you fail for Tango in this way? Um, it's, because to some people who take dance classes or are interested, it's just another dance. But of course, it's so much more here. It is so much more. I think Tango is never just another dance if you really get into it. Uh, not... Not if you are a good match for tango, that yes. is. And I think uh, it was the perfect match for me. Mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, in my 20s, I was kind of, um, you know, a lost soul. I had all the trademarks of a lost soul. And I think tango really is a, a, a dance, a music, a poetry, and you might even say a way of life now, yeah. because it's really taken off in the last 10 years, uh, for the culturally, romantically... Um, philosophically displaced, yeah. which is really most of us, I <laughs> think, true. these days. Tango allows you to admit that. And there's so many characters in it that um, you come across. Who, there's very, very different people. You can't say, well, that's a tango-type person, because as you say, it's pretty much everyone. But it's those who have found it um, and seem to have very different relationships. And also there's different types of tango, isn't there? I mean, that's... At the beginning you see it dance one way and then you go to Argentina and there's different Argentina would you say that's the home I know some people say of course that's, that's the, the source that's, that's the source, the source yeah. that's the mecca <laughs> uh, it's where people go to lose themselves mm. uh, so I, I mean as, as you say it's so many different styles yes that is true different styles of dancing different preferences different tastes uh, like in any subculture yeah you know you take anything else i mean any kind of exclusive club you know maybe it's you know the same for people who play bridge or <laughs> or, or who are swingers or yeah. or i don't know or, or who dance salsa you know mm -hmm. it's, it's a similar kind of thing there are schisms <laughs> there are little sort of local wars sure um and so on but i think the the, the interesting thing about tango as a way of life is that it is it's just that it has become a way of life a subculture which kind of embraces all those different styles and nationalities and people with complex cultural backgrounds and relationship statuses and multiple passports <laughs> um, and you know tango has become like a, a kind of country without borders mm. you can now be in berlin or glasgow and be dancing every other night of the week um, and feel part of this 
this this country, global country of tango, and that's very seductive. I, I think you're right, and that's what appealed to me was this idea of a subculture, something which uh, is not illicit, but still underground. And it comes from an illicit background. At one point you explained that this was something that, one of the reasons it spread so widely was because the sailors would come into town and dance with the local prostitutes. And, you know, this was obviously not something that the gentry would be doing. Absolutely. I mean, as with all grassroots types of music, mm. it starts off uh, disrespectable, you know. It's, yeah. it's not a respectable yeah. uh, occupation. That's why it's exciting. That's why a hundred and whatever years later now, tango is still strangely exciting and alluring. Yeah, that's, that's the point, because it doesn't seem to have become... Like, well, I mean, it is acceptable, but it doesn't seem to become hugely mainstream. It still seems to be, you know, something a little bit secretive, a little bit uh, perhaps daring. And I wonder if that is partly, it's a very physical dance, it seems to me, very close. You cannot, I don't mean physical as in, you know, star jumps and, you know, spinning on your back. But there's um, an intimacy. Throughout the book, which was interesting to me, you say, well, this is not about um, finding someone it's about the dance but there's an intimacy that you can see how that would be for some people it would be about finding a person or perhaps many people oh absolutely i mean you would have to be a would have to be something wrong with you to be single and get into tango and be in close embrace with all sorts of interesting people yeah. and not to for it not to occur to you that you yeah. might well find the, the great love of your life yes yes which is why it's it's so dangerous and yeah. so interesting and uh and it challenges your boundaries and you really find out who you are after a number of years of you know being on the dance floor you really find out who you are whether you want it or not yes <laughs> <laughs> well i think that that's the, the, uh, one of the interesting parts is you go and have this relationship with tango and meet all these different people and you're almost looking i think for tango to, to give you something and or to find something through the dance and in the end, you know, you find out much more about yourself and that's that's the happy ending, I think, at the, at the end of it. Um, but also, it, it it allowed you, you were saying, you, you felt almost displaced wherever you were and you had itchy feet to always be somewhere else. And the fact that Tango was in every port, if you like, allowed you to kind of follow it round. And, and then you had, you almost already, I was going to say had a sailor in every port. I don't mean that in every <laughs> way. But in Tango, you had a connection. I in wish. Every... <laughs> that would be quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> you had a connection in every way you do it, right? Because you knew that you could go there and find people of, if not, sim yeah, I would say yeah, of a similar mind, perhaps. Absolutely. You, you, could, you could instantly, no matter how, how ill it is you, you feel in a place you can instantly find a local tango club yeah. and immediately you have something in common with potentially hundreds of people mm -hmm. uh, you share this secret knowledge as you say there is an underground quality to tango because it's not I mean let's face it it's not part of our everyday culture no. in, in, in Europe at least uh, it, the only place where it is is Buenos Aires where you see it <coughs> on the streets mm -hmm. but the rest of the world in the rest of the world it's, it's, it's a kind of subculture you have to know which club mm. and which dance hall to go to on yeah. which days of the week, yeah. uh, and that of course is also part part of its part of its allure. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, it, it is it is a wonderful thing even for people uh, 
people I've met in the tango world who who do belong in a place, who do have a mm. st stable job and even a steady relationship yeah. um, and they're not a complete a sort of a cultural, you know, mess. Um, even, <laughs> even they find something in tango mm. that they can't find anywhere else in life. And I think it's because you are tapping at the source of something when you're in, in an embrace with, with someone yeah. that you enjoy dancing with. Um, usually that's not your real life partner. Yeah. Such is the nature of tango. I think that's fascinating about the because the, the, the intimacy comes across and so you think well this is the perfect um, dance for the single but actually it's it almost the, the, the couples that, that go together it's not like some kind of swinging scene at all. It's, it's they, it, They're very strong together and you have to be strong to kind of let go in that sense. It's a fascinating. It's a fascinating book. I highly recommend it. Can um, I just say, yes. tango is not for everyone. <laughs> for <laughs> yes. the reasons you just, just said. Well, well, <laughs> absolutely right. I think you have to be, um, yeah, very confident. I think in your uh, in your relationship. I think to uh, succeed in the tango world. It seems to me. Or if you don't have a relationship, you have to be very confident of your boundaries. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. I didn't, yeah, I suppose that's true. Or be prepared to find out what they For are what and pay the are. price. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I like that. It's not for everyone. <laughs> are you going to take that, do you think? Well, do you know what? It had crossed my mind. I have to say, it had crossed my mind. And I think, I think you've not really got the book if it doesn't cross your mind after reading it. No doubt about it. Now, whether I do or not, it's something completely different. But uh, I like The worst that could happen is a horribly broken heart. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, I've had enough of them already. So, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, I'm steeled for that these days. That's okay. But the best that could happen is that you might find bliss. Well, no, that's worth, worth taking the chance, without a doubt. Without Up a doubt. You. So you travelled around, you moved from place to place, and then, and now... You are living in Edinburgh. Um, so what is it, and you seem, as far as I can see, to be quite content at the moment in Edinburgh. What was it about that city, because this is, that uh, appeals to you at this moment in time, you know? I, I, I think it's in this moment in time, but also ever since I arrived in Edinburgh, I've mm. had this this sort of feeling of being in the right place. Yeah, that comes across, I think, in the, in the book, definitely. It's almost like, it's almost like a weight comes off your shoulders. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I've arrived somewhere. Yeah, I can feel that. Yes, yes, and that hasn't gone away. And it's, uh, uh, it was such a surprise to have that feeling for the first time in my life. Um, and I guess, as with... You can explain it away. You can talk about the architecture of mm. the city and the people and the vibe that something's in the air that suits you, yes. you know, uh, it, it, and the landscape and all of that is true. There is something there that is right for me. But I think like with falling in love, there are things you can't explain. Yeah. There are some irrational things, uh, I think, that go on between you and the place. Yeah. And if you could explain them, you know, it prob they probably wouldn't be the right things. I think that's often the way. I think that's where writing comes in. Yeah. <laughs> I was, um, you know, because there's obviously supposed to be this, you know, East-West divide, Edinburgh-Glasgow divide, which I've never bought into myself. Um, I was through in Edinburgh on, on Thursday and it was a little bit foggy or a little bit overcast and it, just this wonderfully dramatic 
city that few places, I mean, I've done a little bit of travelling, but few places can match, you know, when you're going under the bridges down into Waverley Station or, I mean, it's, it's very Dickensian actually, or maybe Stevenson or Hoggish, I should say, but it's got that feel about it. It's got that, yeah, that kind of uh, almost literary drama, but at the same time it's got this energy and I, I really... F- I really feel very strongly about uh, how different cities have different energies yeah. and the energy of, of Edinburgh without going into any sort of spiritual and sort of rant here <laughs> you know there is there is something calming in Edinburgh that I don't find in many other places uh, you know it just calms it just soothes me walking yeah. around the streets of Edinburgh um, has a kind of soothing um, effect on my nervous system <laughs> <laughs> while stimulating my imagination you can't beat that. So what was it about the other cities? Because the ones that I remember you having a strong relationship with in the book, definitely um, Buenos Aires and Berlin are the two which spring to mind. What would you say about those that you didn't find that kind of peace? Uh, but Berlin in many ways is... Uh, um, like a bigger version, a magnified version of my childhood, because <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible to be in Berlin and not 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 to feel uh, the vibes of the Cold War still in right. the air and and um, and other disasters, you yes. know, from the twentieth century. So uh, Berlin is a very it's a hard city. If it, it's not a soothing city, it's uh, I find that very interesting because it's got a great reputation, obviously, for being a very artistic city. Rightly so, and I know a lot of people. In fact, a friend of mine's going to move over there uh, next month, who go from the West, interestingly enough, either American or uh, Western European, and just say this is the most amazing city, but of course culturally they don't have perhaps the same baggage that you can see in, in, in the place. I think that's really interesting. It's become a very fashionable place, I think, Berlin for West Germans and just generally, you know, Western what we used to call the West yeah. <laughs> during the Cold War, to move to, precisely because of what you say, it's a very uh, artistically vibrant city. Mm-hmm. I think it's got the most galleries uh, per square meter in Europe or some, some something like that. Okay. But, I mean, if you're attuned to these things, I mean, Berlin wears its pain, it's passed on its sleeve. Yeah. So it's a very, it's a painful place to yeah. be in. And I also got that feeling about Buenos Aires. There was, there was a pain there, and you're talking about... Um, a, a country with a similarly recent, often a terrible past, because um, it would have seemed that that was the perfect place for you, winning this love affair with Tango. But perhaps it was too passionate, it was too intense there, you know? <laughs> yes, uh, Buenos Aires is my, my favourite city in the world, but uh, that doesn't mean that I could live there, yeah. precisely because of what you said. It's um, it's almost too much. It's, it's a very intense... Um, Metropolis, and as you say, recent you know, thirty thousand people don't don't disappear yeah. uh, without leaving a trace for generations to come. Yeah. And if you if you do know, if you are sort of clued up about recent history, you really feel it. And mm. and it's it's not even just that. It's it. I mean, the place that gave birth to tango mm-hmm. can only be a kind of messy place yeah and that's <laughs> in in more than one ways um, yeah. otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't be hearing tango in the streets it's like the time and place that uh, the existentialism came from it wouldn't be a happy time that's the whole point of it <laughs> but buenos aires is, is very much a place worth visiting just to kind of 
feel that you you know it's like no place no other place on earth at least you know in my sort of yeah. experience where you really are sort of on 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 the you're what is it, it it's like europe south america um uh, and something else uh, some some other sort of feeling of cosmopolis you know at the same time there is no there is no place in Europe like it. Yes. And in South America, of course, it's got the reputation of being the Paris of South America. Yeah. It's a very European um, influences on it. Again, for cultural reasons. Huge, nostalgic European influences. And you feel, I mean, it's a place where you feel, it's the perfect place to feel that untranslatable thing called Tangida. Right. And Tangida is... Uh, a tango historian coined this, this, this word, tangida, and it's best translated as being in a state of tango. All right. There are places <laughs> in the world, uh, usually cities, where I believe you can feel you being can in feel a state of tangida. You oh. can feel it. It's, you know, it's not about hearing tango itself or anything like that. It's, it's that feeling of sort of being both in the present and in the past, uh, being happy and sad, mm. being here but there. Uh, feeling that time is passing for everyone, including you. Yeah. That's Tangida. That kind of melancholia, but you can't quite put your finger on why. Mm -hmm. oh, that's fascinating. Um, you set your uh, novel Villa Pacifica, is that right? Um, that's in South America, isn't it? Now, is that in uh, Buenos Aires, or does it look wider? Um, Villa Pacifica is set on the Pacific coast right. of South America. Um, in what is really Ecuador, but it's okay. not named right. uh, in the novel. And um, could you tell us a bit about it? Uh, it's really a story that follows uh, my great obsession with places and how they bring out sometimes the most extreme parts of us. Okay. Um, I, I am a great um, a fan of the writing of um, Paul Bowles, right. the American um, uh, writer, I think he's. He, he I know the name, but I haven't more, read it. Yeah. He should be read more widely. I, I, he's the author of *The Sheltering Sky*, ah. um, which is also a beautiful film by yeah. Bertolucci. Yes, I know the film. Yes. But Paul Bowles had this um, uh, said in in his memoir um, the following uh, thing, which I I think I have very much lived by. Um, he said, "Like any romantic, I always believed that one day I would come into a place." which in disclosing its secrets would bring me wisdom and ecstasy, perhaps even death. Wow. <laughs> so Villa Pacifica is, um, it's a mystery novel mm -hmm. uh, on the surface of it, but I think at a deeper level it's really about people going to a, an unfamiliar place to look for thrills. Okay. And having to, having to, you know, come to terms with their worst selves. Right. Uh, so maybe looking for one thing and then actually finding a lot, a bit like tangled. You're looking for one thing originally, thinking it will give yes, you one looking thing. Looking for one thing, which 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 is which is a romantic idea uh, of yourself, or you know, a romantic holiday, or a romantic experience. And by romantic, I mean both, uh, you know, lowercase and uppercase. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but really, discovering something much more true and awful in the case of Villa Pacific. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, obviously, writing in, in Scotland, and we were saying that the Scottish writing 
scene is quite a small one. Hopefully we'll have most people on here if we haven't already. Uh, what, do you, what, what have you found about your writing in Scotland? Has um, that changed your own writing or um, what have you taken from the whole Scottish culture of, of literature or, or writing in general? Oh, that's a big question. I'm, I'm slightly intimidated by it. <laughs> okay. oh, Maybe I should start answering it in a small way. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, I'm really so delighted and um, honoured to be kind of to be featured on this because <laughs> because I'm obviously not Scottish, but but here I am living very happily in Scotland. But that's the, the, the a great bugbear of mine is you know who who are we to going right back to what you said at the beginning who's anyone to define what uh, anyone's idea of Scottish is and I always say if I can if you can justify having any kind of link then we are willing to talk about it of course these days the whole question of what is Scottish and what is Scotland is you know constantly being asked and questioned and all of these things far too much I have to say um, because I find that these are the, the things that stop if I was to say Kapka Kazabova is uh, not a Scottish writer and therefore, uh, you know, you wouldn't get to, people wouldn't get to hear this kind of talk and I think, you know, it's always a shame. No, I think, I think it's, 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 yes, you're quite right. I think the whole issue of national, you know, literatures and national consciousness and all of these things, I was kind of hoping to have come to a country that, that has transcended all of that, but it, I think at this point in time it hasn't. No. Uh, but I think that will probably resolve itself, hopefully, hopefully in a kind of honourable, uh, open way. You know, yeah. the whole Scottish. Well, I hope so because <laughs> uh, I think thing in the next decade or so. Yeah, um, I, I hope the same thing. I think, um, as, of course, as everyone knows, nationalism can be a terrible thing. Um, it's and it's such a difficult thing to define in any way. Maybe we'll have to go through definitions and strict definitions to actually come out the end and not worry about it be kind of more relaxed about it i think in the last few years that's happened much much more it was interesting you know you were part of the year of open doors and i thought that collection did exactly that it was much more you know the doors are open and we will publish anyone that we want to yes and people with with slightly exotic names can be included <laughs> exactly <laughs> but i think that's why that that's why I feel so comfortable living in Scotland. I spend mm. a lot of time in the Highlands now, um, and between Edinburgh and the Highlands, and of course Glasgow, very much part-time, but mm. I think if Scotland wasn't the kind of place where I would feel completely at ease, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy living yeah, here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a country that, yes, there is a certain sort of uh, self-absorbed discourse of who are who are we really and mm -hmm. uh, the whole discourse about Scottish independence and you know I think that is obviously part of what we live with now but I think another part is that actually Scotland is you know Scotland is much more than than being Scottish Scotland yeah. is now the way Europe is yeah. and it's uncontrollably yeah open, uncontrollably kind of, I mean in the best sense yes. of the word, oh, yeah. culturally open and um, you know I never thought of coming to Scotland because I wanted to become Scottish or local, no, no, no. it's because there was something about Edinburgh and I have to say much of Scotland that makes me feel free. Yeah, I get I a sense of freedom here that I, that I don't have in London for example. Mm -hmm. Ironically, because I'm, you know, I like cities. Yeah. 
Um, but in London, I sort of I feel oppressed by the pace of life, and in mm -hmm. Scotland, there is something something en ennobling, you know, in the in the in the way of life, and um, you know, once you do once you do find your way of life, that yes. is, and you're not struggling to survive, um, there is something that I don't know just sets me free here, and and I think. That kind of answers perhaps the question of that you know yeah. um, that I was so intimidated by that you asked me <laughs> you know how have you been influenced you know it's such a rich culture mm -hmm. and yet it's you know it's local and at the same time it's been informed you know for a long time by all sorts of influences and other voices and I'm very happy to be adding to that yeah. I think. I think sometimes the size, whether it's Edinburgh, whether it's Scotland as a whole, or wherever, um, Scottish writing, Scottish culture, whatever, it's, it's, it is very open, well, these days I think it is very open, because it's not, we're not saying, well, we're full up, <laughs> you know, no, come on in, you know, we will, hopefully people welcome, I've had it now, I mean, I stayed in, in Sydney briefly a few years ago, and um, again, big city, but quite laid back city. But there was never the the um, compulsion to try and fit in and be Australian. That would just be, in that country especially, that would just be mad. You know, in fact, the only people who could have a proper claim to be Australian are the ones that are actually treated abysmally. Everyone else is, you know, welcome everyone in. Um, and it, it, it always, coming back to Scotland, at a time when there was changes in late 90s and devolved government and all of that things, there was definitely a different feel from before I went away when there was that thing about, well, why, why is it Scottish? Why is it, you know? And that that's, comes from having to kind of fight for whether it's a literature or a language or, or, or whatever it might be. And since that's beginning to change, but that fight isn't so necessary, it's being won. I think it's being won. It's been won, but I think some people want to uh, give us the impression that the fight is still on, mm -hmm. in cultural terms, not just political terms. Yeah. And, and I find that quite, quite worrying. Right. Uh, um, some people in Scotland. Yes, I mean. yes, no, I know, I know, absolutely. I, well, I think perhaps there's a fear that, um, well, one, yes, you use use culture to try and give your other battles a bit of credence, if you like. Um, and how, a lot of people who I think went through the fight to, to one, get literature, uh, Scottish literature in schools and all that are wary that that would regress. So I think that's sometimes why people are, are still kind of uh, forceful about it. But I, I mean, as I say, I think it, it's it's a fight that's being won, definitely, and um, there's more disparate voices that I get to write about, or we get to interview, or no matter who it is, whether it's oh, someone like Louise Welsh, who's Glaswegian, or Alan from Falkirk, or yourself, or, or Rog Glass is going to come on from Manchester, and, and you know, we just say, just, just talk about the work, that's the thing that... that that at the end of the day is what we we should be focusing on, I think. Yes, in a, yeah, with integrity and honesty. Yeah. And then I, I think the rest is, uh, um, you know, unfortunately up to politicians. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, and when they're dealing with culture, we know we're in trouble, without a doubt. I might go back to, the, again, of 
any kind of labels, people might think we need them, but they just get in the way of actually understanding things, I think. All, the, all across the road, you, why is this a memoir and not a you know novel? Why is it? You say, well, just read it. Just enjoy it. You don't have to. You don't have to define it in that way. So we finish. I should have told you this because I'm going to spring this on you. But we finish every uh, podcast with five questions. But don't worry, it's not as intimidating. I hope as that one that I gave you at the end. I'm just quite pleased you haven't upped and left the room. Um, it's just something we like to do. People seem to enjoy it. Um, it's a few fa- few of your favourite things, as somebody once sung. And, and it begins with your favourite book. Now, answer it as you will. If you want to give me more than one, that's fine. Um, if it just happens to be your favourite book today, that's fine. There is no pressure. The Sheltering Sky by Paul Bowles. Fantastic. Fantastic. If you don't have time to read it, see the film. Yes, I would agree with that. The film is tremendous, but I think I might check him out. I didn't realise... I, I mean, I knew the name, but I didn't realise he'd written that book. Um, okay, well, following on from that, and it could be the same answer, your favourite writer? Oh, uh, so many. That's not fair. I know, it's not I fair. I have to choose one? These que- no, you don't have to choose one. You can come up with more than one. That's it. And since you are uh, <laughs> writing these multiple styles, perhaps you could say favourite poet, favourite novelist, favourite journalist, whatever. My favourite fiction writer is probably Daphne du Maurier. Okay, fantastic. It's very, it's a very unfashionable answer, isn't it? No, I don't. Well, gosh. but you know, you have to be honest about what you. Of course, you I do. can read and reread her stories, especially her short stories, not her novels so mm. much. Her short stories and wonder why she's not. Yeah, more widely fated. More widely read and studied. Um, one of my pet hates is when people say, oh, this is my guilty pleasure. Just let it be a pleasure. You don't have to feel guilty about it. I feel guilty about enough things in my life. I don't want to feel guilty about pleasure, for goodness sake. <laughs> and can I follow this with another great uh, uh, woman writer, mm-hmm. Rebecca West, whose travel writing okay. obviously comes from a previous era. Yeah. She is... I think uh, the most profound and sophisticated Rebecca West, I do not know that entertaining uh, travel writer. And when was she writing? Uh, she wrote a fantastic book, which is a kind of classic now, called um, About Yugoslavia, which was written in between the two wars, right. the two world wars, wow. called Black Lamb, Grey Falcon. She's now Dame Rebecca West. Well, there you go. Um, but I shouldn't be writing this down while I'm doing the interview. I'll get it from you later on. That's terribly unprofessional. I can lend it to you. As if I'm professional at all, anyway. Okay, next we have, uh, and this is going to be interesting, favourite band stroke music. So, you know, what kind of music do you like? Or is there a band that you're... Um... Oh, uh, I'm very old-fashioned. So apart from tango, I, I mostly listen to classical music. What kind of classical uh, music do you prefer? Well, I like Baroque music because it calms my nerves. Uh, but I really have to say Astor Piazzolla to this one because I think Astor Piazzolla is the composer tango mm-hmm. yes. talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you <laughs> make that clear, people. I've read the book, you maybe haven't, but you should. When you listen to Astor Piazzolla, you really feel that you're seeing the movie of your life. Mm. That's why I love his music. The ta- the. the I would love to uh, listen to the soundtrack to this book. I think it would be phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal, and read through um, 
as, as I'm reading it, listening to it, I think it would give you a much uh, greater experience. iTunes. iTunes, that's the way to do it, <laughs> absolutely. It's, it's all there now, at the touch of a button. Um, okay, film, favourite film? Oh, um, Don't Look Now. Oh, Nick, Nick, ah, no. Why? Because I love that film as well. Why does that? I'm so glad because some people don't know it, which always upsets me. (laughs) So it upsets me as well. A filmmaker of Nick Rogue's stuff, um, you should really check out. I think he's one of the best filmmakers around. Some of his other stuff, which people have kind of forgotten because he does go quite strange. (laughs) But with the man man who fell to earth, isn't it? The Bowie film that he directed, I'm sure. Film. <laughs> but Don't Look Now is perhaps his most mainstream but just incredible film. It's a perfect film for me yeah. because it's, it again, it's about what, what a place can do to you. Mm. Oh Venice. yeah, of course, yes. And it's about the subconscious and how the subconscious works for us and against us. That's what that story is about for me. And of course it's a Daphne du Maurier story. Yes, of course. I didn't even make that link. Um, it is about, about place and how that can place and state of mind, which yes. again goes back to the, your book, uh, being in perhaps the wrong state of mind and in the wrong place. And when that comes together, as much as when you're in the right frame of mind and in the right place, mm-hmm. going to have terrible, terrible effects. And the end of that film, if nobody's seen it, oh, it's just shocking and heartbreaking. And the way it looks as well, I mean, he can really make a film look beautiful. I've seen that film maybe six times and that last scene never fails to shock me. Well, oh yeah, I know, I know. We won't give it away. Though. We won't give it away. But have you, have you seen? I don't know the film I saw last year called uh, "We Need to Talk About Kevin," which mm-hmm. is and Lynn Ramsey is the filmmaker, and it's the first time since uh, "Don't Look Now" where the use of red, you know, is used so strongly to symbolise that uh, something is not right here. <laughs> uh, incredible, incredible. Oh, I haven't seen that for a couple of years. I must go back and watch it again. And the last question, and then we'll let you go, <laughs> is the, now this is one that people go, what? But it's the event or happening or piece of theatre or dance that changed your life. Now, I think I might know the answer to this. I think I might have read it. But I think you might guess. <laughs> <laughs> so if you can say the event that changed your life. I think it was 11 years ago when I was in downtown Auckland, New Zealand, and walked into an empty bar and saw a couple dancing to a tango tune, just dancing for themselves. That changed my life. Yeah, and if you think that sounds like the beginning of a fantastic tale, then you'd be right, because it's the beginning of 12 Minutes of Love, a tango story. You've got to go out and buy this book and have a read of it. And Kapka, thank you very much for coming along today. And we will uh, see you next time round. Thank you.